Morning, church. Can everyone hear me clearly? Good. I've had um, <clears throat> incidents with this thing on my head for um, previous times, so um, I'm glad I can um, speak clearly without having to fuss about it. Um, so we will be continuing our, our message from the book of Luke, um, and we are at a very crucial junction in, in the story here. Um, I'm just going to give a quick background um, as to for those who might not be following us or haven't been following us um, previously. Uh, we have been looking at the book of Luke uh, for four weeks now, probably months now, and we've, we've looked at the life of Jesus Christ right from his birth, right all the way to essentially what is um, leading up to um, his, his um, execution on, on the cross. So we get to this part of the story, which is the trial of Jesus Christ. And now we're going to be looking at Luke 22, um, uh, from verses 63 all the way to chapter 23, all the way to 25. I'm not going to read the entirety of it because um, I've got a bit to go through today. So I'm just going to read <clears throat> from um, verses 22, uh, uh, from chapter 22, verses 63. I'm going to focus on that. And then um, you just follow me and bear with me as we go through the stories. We'll be going through Bible passages today. Um, so just um, get ready. I'm going to be firing it out to you guys. So please bear with me. Okay, um, so Luke 22 from verses 63, it says, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many things against him, blaspheming him. When they came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered around both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you have said that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And so here, um, Jesus Christ has been taken and arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane. His um, disciples had all left him. And what you have is uh, probably Apostle John, who was with Jesus Christ at this point here. And Peter was outside waiting, uh, denying Christ, really. So Christ is on his own, really, here. And he's been beaten, he's been roughed up, he's been mocked. And now they are placing accusations on him. And this is quite late, or you could say in the early hours of the morning. And up to this point, you've seen the tension between the leaders, the religious leaders of Israel and Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ had been building a momentum here. He had been getting following. Um, people had been sort of seeing the work that he's been doing, feeding thousands and healing the sick and raising the dead. And this climaxes as he approaches and goes into Jerusalem on a donkey, um, basically, which is very symbolic to the Jews because that was what the prophecy said that the heir of King David, the Messiah, will do. He will come on, on a donkey foal into, into Jerusalem. And they worshipped him as the Messiah. They, they said, Hosanna, as he came in. So the religious leaders at this point saw Jesus as a threat to their rule, to their established order. And so they were trying to find a reason to kill him, to get rid of him. 
And what was the charge they brought against him? In Matthew, it talks about two witnesses that came forward. So this is Matthew 26. It talks about two witnesses that came forward. And the biggest charge they brought against Jesus was that he declared that he will destroy the temple, the magnificent behemoth of a structure, the Herodian temple, that he will destroy that temple and he will raise that temple up in three days. Now, for a first century um, person, uh, there, there really wasn't any technology that you could use to, um, for one person to obliterate a temple. They didn't have dynamite, they didn't have TNT, they didn't have explosives. And certainly, let's say he found a way to burn the temple to the, to the ground. There is no way to rebuild such a temple in three days. So at best, that accusation was um, the ransoms of a madman. Only a madman will say such a thing. It's not worth killing someone over. And Jesus then says something and they asked him, so who are you then? And he says, if I tell you, you wouldn't listen to me. There's no point. But then he says something. He says, you will see the son of man. And Ma- Matthew um, sort of expands that. He said, you will see the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Now for a, a, a religious leader that understood the basic Bible, the basic Old Testament, will understand that Jesus Christ was talking about Daniel when Daniel wrote about his prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, where there was a figure that was sat on a throne called the Ancient of Days. And this Ancient of Days person, this figure, had hair that was white as wool. And he had a magnificent throne. And from his throne, there was just gushing fires. And in front of him were myriads and myriads and myriads of hosts and angels. This was clearly God the Father, the Creator. And then it says, later in that verse, it says, and then I saw someone like the son of man approaching with the clouds of heaven. And to that son of man was given a dominion, was given an eternal kingdom, and all peoples worshipped him. And so you have this figure, the, 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 the father, as you could, say, you could say, God the creator, and you had someone else come, and that person receives worship in the presence of the father. That person was regarded and treated as God, because only God is worthy of worship. No angels are worthy of worship. And this is what Jesus Christ says he is. He says, I am the son of man. That's why they said, you, you, who are you? And he says, oh, oh, so you call yourself the son of God then. You refer yourself to that passage in Daniel. And so the final charge they brought against Jesus Christ was blasphemy. And in, in, in Jewish law, um, you know, if you, are a, if you blaspheme, if you call yourself or compare yourself to God, um, that is a death penalty. And you could, you could argue that, yeah, okay, they, from their perspective, they think he was a blasphemer, so they're killing him because they think he's a blasphemer. That would be one way of sort of defending them. But if they did their due diligence, if they followed their own law, their own Torah, that would have reminded them that the Messiah would have been conceived of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. Did they even bother to go to Jesus' mother, to go to his aunties, his uncles, those that understood the circumstances of his birth? Did they go to confirm that is he the Messiah? Did they do their due diligence before accusing him of blasphemy? The Messiah will be, by human ancestry, a descendant of King David. And if you look at the lineage of Jesus from either Mary or from Joseph, he was descended from the house of David. He will be born in the city of David. According to Luke 4, he was, because that was, they went back to Bethlehem during the time of the census. So he was born. The Messiah will be born. So he's fulfilled all these three. 
the Messiah will perform signs and wonders as legitimacy of the message he had about God's kingdom. That's what we saw Jesus say in Luke um, 7.22, where he talks to, it reminds John, when John the Baptist was doubting who Jesus was. It says, remind him, the sick are healed, the lame walk, the blind receive sight, and the good news of the kingdom is being preached. And the fifth point that these leaders could have referred to is that Jesus Christ drew people to God. In Mark 12, 29 to 31, 12, 29 to 31, Jesus says, Yeah, oh yeah, Israel, the Lord our God is one. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your strength, all your might, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. So he wasn't even leading them to a false God. He was drawing them to the God of Israel. He passed all the tests by their standard. He was the Messiah, even by their standard. And so why did they, why, why were they sure that this guy, it, he, was, he, was, he was a blasphemer? Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 18. I'm just going to read quickly through this. And it says that, and the Lord said to me that there will be a prophet that will come. I will raise up a prophet like you from among your brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command them. And whoever will not listen to my words, he shall speak in my name. I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. This is what they hung their charge on, that he is not the prophet. But if they read further, and if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that, a pro- that the Lord has spoken? How may we know that this is the prophet? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. And so this is the test. This is the ultimate test. How do we know this guy is the real deal? Look at his works. Look at the signs. Look at the words he's saying. Did they not come true? They had all this evidence, and yet they say, crucify him. He's a blasphemer. And so we see Jesus Christ led away and taken to the governor of Judea, Samaria, Pontius Pilate. And here, the charges change, which is very interesting because they accused him of blasphemy. And now, they bring him to Pontius Pilate. We see that in Luke um, 22, 3 to 4. And they basically say to, to Pontius Pilate, he stares the people against you. He stares all the people up. He is causing trouble for the land. It's very interesting. They didn't bring the charge of blasphemy. Why? Because the Romans had no regard for the laws of the Jews. If they brought him to them, then like, you, could, you could deal with him. And it's also interesting that they did not stone Jesus Christ to death as they would have. We know they had no problem with stoning people to death. The woman who was accused of adultery was basically sentenced to death and was going to be stoned to death. The very first martyr of the church, Stephen, was stoned to death. So the Jews had no problem stoning people to death if they felt like they had broken their laws. But Jesus was too popular. It was politically untenable to kill him. He had just been welcomed into Jerusalem as the Messiah. They thought this is the guy that would liberate us. What would it look like if they then killed the people's Messiah? 
So they had to get the Romans to do their dirty work for them. And so Pilate says to him, are you the king of the Jew? Is this a political matter? Are you claiming sort of monarchical authority over these people? Who are you? At this point, Pilate knew who Jesus was. He had spies in the land. He knew what Jesus stood for. He knew Jesus' preaching on giving to Caesars that which is Caesar and giving to God that which is God. So you had this popular leader in the land who was basically saying, pay your taxes to Caesar and honor God. So that wasn't a threat to the Romans. They knew that a popular guy the same pay your taxes. That's a, that's a good point. That's a, that's a bonus on our end. So Pilate says for the first time, I don't see any fault in this man. He's not stirring people. How, how can you accuse him of stirring the people against Rome if he's telling them to pay their taxes? I find no fault in this man. And so Pilate does what the political leaders do, which is to punt the ball down the field. And then he pushed Jesus over to Herod. And Herod is giddy at this point and says, Ooh, I heard about this Jesus. I heard he's a miracle worker. And then he, he wants Jesus to do signs and wonders. Oh, shoot flames from your hand. Oh, make a sparkle in the air. And Jesus does none of this. So Herod roughs him up and scuffs him up and, 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 and beats him some more and humiliates him some more and then sends him back to Pilate. At this point, they, they, Pilate sees him for the second time and, and they say, he is tearing the people up. Trust us. The leaders were saying, and the crowds behind him, he is tearing the people up. And Pilate said for the second time, I find no guilt here. We see in Isaiah 53, which is the, uh, the prophecy about the, the Messiah to come, the sufferings of the Messiah. We see what Isaiah says in, verses, uh, in chapter 53, verse 9. It says that they made his grave with the wicked, talking about the, the Messiah, and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit found in his, man, in his mouth. And this talks to the innocence of Christ. For the second time, it is very clear, even to a pagan governor, that this was a guiltless. This was an innocent man. And yet... This is where we see in Luke 23, 18 to 24, the leaders, the religious leaders says, no, crucify him. And Pilate says, what evil has he done? I have found no guilt in him deserving death. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he be crucified and their voices prevailed. Three times the charge was brought, and three times Jesus Christ was declared not guilty. Even by the standard of a pagan governor, Christ was faultless. And we see also in Matthew, Matthew talks about the fact that Pilate saw that a riot was brewing here. And there's one thing Romans don't like, they don't like riots. And so Pilate, for the sake of sort of a political ease. He says, all right, let's crucify him. But before he did that, he brought out someone, a man known as Barabbas. 
Now, Barabbas was a special kind of person. Barabbas was an inciter to violence, a rioter, an insurrectionist, and a murderer. He was everything they accused Jesus of. He brings him out from his prison, stands him side by side with Jesus Christ. And this was the genius of Pilate. And he says to them, okay, you guys are really concerned about insurrection and about troubling Rome. Well, we got someone here that murdered, troubled Rome, carried out riots, and we have someone here whose fault seems to be the fact that he calls himself the son of God. Hasn't stayed any trouble for anybody. And then he says to them, who do you want me to release? And they said, we want Barabbas to go free. Crucify Jesus. So it was very clear at this point that they weren't interested in the peace of Rome. This wasn't about insurrection or trying to stop insurrection. This was trying to have Christ crucified and killed by the Roman hands. This was the final act of hypocrisy. But in this picture where Barabbas, funny enough, his name is Barabbas, son of the father, standing next to the actual son of the father, Jesus Christ. There is what we see the kind of almost clearly for the first time, this great exchange happening where an innocent man who had done no guilt, as Isaiah said, there was no violence found in him. There was no deceit. So in words and in deeds, he was perfect. And yet, he was being exchanged for a man that was deserving of the death penalty. We see this exchange happen. It's very easy when we read the story to think about it from a, a purely sort of, sort of looking at it from the political elements of it, the human elements of it. But we have to remember that this happened on the day that the Passover lamb was going to be sacrificed. It's important that we see the story from the perspective of heaven. You see, when the Passover lamb, before the Passover lamb is sacrificed, the chief priest or the, the person who will sacrifice the, the lamb will carry out an inspection, a thorough inspection, a visual, physical inspection, looking at the lamb to see if the lamb was somehow sick or was defected or had a limp or had a, something that was wrong with the lamb. Why was this? You see, the Passover event was a reminder of, for the Jewish people of what God did for them in the land of Egypt when they were slaves. And before God brought the final plague, he instructed them and said that you're going to take a young lamb, less than a year old, and it must be a lamb without blemish. Must be a lamb without blemish. What does that mean? That means that it's a lamb that can have no physical defects. You have to sacrifice this lamb and apply the blood on the doorpost of your house. And when the angel that is coming from the Lord comes, it will and seize the blood of this lamb, it will pass over. That's where we first hear the, the first word, the first time we hear the word Passover. And this is what the, the Jews celebrated. But you see, in this story, God was basically saying that this is my own Passover lamb. According to your standards, the Jewish standard, he was perfect. According to the standards of the Romans, he is perfect. Look him up, down. Front, back, inside, out, he is perfect. Why is this important? 
Because God was providing a covering. You see, God, the, the, pass, the blood of the Passover lamb was so important because if there was a defect, then the angel of death, the, the judgment that God was bringing on the land of Egypt would have just swept the house. It had to be a perfect lamb. This was God's inspection. The trial was being done by men, but really it was orchestrated by God. It was God saying, this is my Passover lamb. Look at him. You can find no fault in him. Even by your imperfect human standards. If one builds a beautiful house with powerful walls and beautiful painting and wonderful gardens and lovely tiled roof, and you miss just one little gap in the roof, just a small tile missing in the roof, and there was a, a big flood. No matter how beautiful, how powerful, how much money you spent on that house, the entire house will be destroyed. You need a perfect covering to protect you from the rain that is to come. And Jesus himself is that perfect covering. It says in 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Even the most hardcore atheists will tell you that I am not perfect, even by my own atheistic standard. How much more are we guilty of imperfections in the eyes of a perfect God? You see, it says in Hebrews 9.27, 9.27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. We're all passing through this life. You know, we're all going to give an accounting to the one that created us. There, there is no reincarnation as the Eastern religions teaches us. There, is, there are no second chances. There is no, for those who play video games, there is no respawning. It's just this one chance. And God's justice, his reign will fall because he's a perfect God. We will not tolerate... Uh, a, a nice judge to let um, guilty people go free, even in our own imperfect world. But we expect God to not be perfect in his justice? No. He will examine every single person. Every single one of us will be examined. And his justice is not like a, okay, I will let that one slide, I will let that one slide. It is perfect. And if we have but one small leak in our roof, in the covering of our lives, then we will be found out. And this is why Jesus Christ is offered. He's offered as an alternative, you see, because we as human beings, we have this tendency of going back and forth with our own covering. We use the covering of our good works. We use the covering of our niceness. We use the covering of our being an upstanding citizen. But God examines the motives of the heart. God doesn't just look at, um, that's a nice guy. He's got a nice, wife, a nice wife and nice kids. He's got a nice job. He's such a nice guy. God doesn't look at that. God sees our heart. He sees, he sees when we are prideful, even in our goodness. He sees that. And so even our best works, our best covering 
It's like a house with a massive hole in it. The best of us. That's how we look like to God. And so God says, well, you've got an option here. You could either come to the day of your judgment with your covering, with your way of making things nice, or you can accept my perfect covering, which is Jesus Christ. Do we want to take a chance with our own imperfections? Or do we want to take a chance with the perfect lamb of God? And so I might say, I know I'm not walking with God. I know I don't have that covering. How do I, how do I enter? How do I come under that covering? Well, the apostles tell us that if you repent of your sins, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he is enough, you reject your pride and turn to God, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Say, I'm done trying to make myself look good. I am not enough. You are more than enough. Turn to Christ, follow him. Follow him. He is better. Accept his covering. And there might be someone here saying, I know he is better, but I have fallen away from him. Like Peter, I have betrayed him again and again and again. How, how, how can I come back to him? Or Christ wants you to know also that his covering is sufficient. This isn't a covering that covers uh, from, from the end of this building to the other. This is a covering that is greater than the width of the entire universe. This is a covering that is sufficient. This is a covering that could bring Apostle Peter back into the grace of God. This is a covering that could bring that person that terrorized the church, Apostle Paul. He could bring him under the covering of God. This is a covering that is great. This is a covering that enables murderers to receive salvation on the cross. Now I'm going to end with this. It says, Jesus says in John 6, 37, in the latter part of that verse, it says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Do you want this perfect covering? I think this is the best passage of entire, entire scriptures. How, how can I be sure that his covering will be enough for me? Well, he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If you want his covering, come to him. There is no other way. He will never reject you. And if you get to, the, to heaven's gate, and if he ever says, oh, I'm not quite sure if I want to let you, so, but I did come to you, he's got no option. This is his promise. You can hold his word up to him. I said, I came to you. And he promises, I will never cast them. I will never say, go back. I don't want you. Come back to him. So Father, we thank you. We thank you because of your covering, we can walk in freedom. We know it's not by our power. We know it's not by our might. 
We know it's not by our righteous works because they are so flawed, so deficient. But we thank you that it's because of the perfect Lamb of God. We thank you for your covering, oh God. Oh Lord, help us to come under this covering. Help us not to trust in the works of our hands, but help us to trust in the finished work of Christ. I just pray for those that are listening today who are not sure. We pray, Lord, I pray that they would turn to you. And Lord, as they turn to you, let them hear your voice saying, welcome, son. Welcome, daughter. We thank you, Heavenly Father. For in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.